Pop Shield, a long-form discussion podcast about musical topics both past and present. I'm Gabe, and I'm joined as always by Dan. Yeah, hello. And Darren. Hello. You know, I like to start each episode by asking you guys if you've listened to anything interesting lately. Yeah, I mean, it just came out uh, like sort of yesterday, but uh, I've been digging into these OK Computer uh, leaks that came out. It's 18 uh, discs, 18 hours of uh, crap oh to wade God. through. Uh, <laughs> It's it's honestly pretty interesting. I thought it was, uh, you know, when I first read about it, I thought it was going to be like, remember that like cutting edge uh, Bob Dylan box set where it was like right, ev- right. every, nor- I thought it was going to be like that for OK Computer, but it's really just like a uh, bunch of live stuff and then like, you know, demos of songs and sometimes pieces of songs. I, it's really, uh, it's actually oh, cooler is, than I thought it was. Is there be. like, uh, like studio chatter and stuff like like after the song or whatever sometimes not not that much but uh like when i was listening to today they uh like fucked up or something and they were like laughing about it you know um but there's not tons of that what about you darren well i finally got around to checking out vampire weekends the father of the bride album Mm. uh have either of you guys listened to it you know Uh, i listened to the first couple tracks and i just wasn't it just was not rubbing me in the right way i don't know why yeah Yeah, i tried it i I couldn't. It's very different from like past Vampire Weekend. Um, just it seems a lot more like mellow and uh, sparse, yeah, you know, like in- instrument wise. <laughs> but um, I actually came to really love it. Uh, I don't entirely love like the album in completely. Like the the middle of the album kind of uh, you know kind of drags a little bit, but uh, picks up right towards the end. And of course, I love like the uh, first like three or four tracks a lot. But um, yeah, I mean, I been really enjoying it i felt like really angry on the first track when you know there's basically this amazing hymn spiritual type of thing that's from the thin red line soundtrack Mm -hmm. the film Mm -hmm. and so they're like oh that's a nice song let's just make a song that is the chords of that and then stop and just play that hymn which is (laughs) awesome and I'm like, you can't fucking do that. You know, make your own song. <laughs> At least um, they didn't hide it, you know? Yeah, I guess not. It's not exactly a sample. It's like... <laughs> yeah, it's just, we're, we're just going to play this song. Um, okay, anyway, in, in lieu of what I've been listening to lately, I uh, wanted to report that I went to... Um, I saw the Dark Star Orchestra and a whole lot of other jam bands <laughs> at the Dark Star Jubilee in Legend Valley, Thornville, Ohio, uh, that was, uh, what was that, Memorial Day weekend, May 24th to 26th. Um, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a crazy thing. It's like a three-day-long festival where everybody kind of camps out and there's music playing the whole time. And then at night, each of those nights, um, this band, the Dark Star Orchestra, which is a Grateful Dead tribute band, plays. They basically like recreate in sort of like a note-for-note way some set uh, from the history of the Grateful Dead. Oh, my god! And they are they're really good i mean they're like they're even their voices are so similar it's like you shut your eyes and you really feel like um you're watching the grateful dead i think it's like the closest you can come to that experience but you know it kind of got me thinking about what ended up being our topic this week so while i was watching the band play the song they're named after fittingly dark star uh which is widely considered one of the grateful dead's greatest and most experimental pieces i started thinking about another one of my favorite cult experimental 60s bands the velvet underground and wondering why at least in indie circles the velvet underground is so celebrated while the grateful dead is pretty much ignored and sometimes even ridiculed 
You know, there's so many similarities and connections between these two bands, and yet they kind of feel like polar opposites. You know, I kept thinking about the famous deleted scene from Pulp Fiction. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but Mia Wallace says, my theory is that when it comes to important subjects, there are only two ways a person can answer. Which way they choose tells you who that person is. For instance, there are only two kinds of people in the world, Beatles people and Elvis people. Now, Beatles people can like Elvis and Elvis people can like the Beatles, but nobody likes them both equally. Somewhere you have to make a choice and that choice tells you who you are. I thought this was very relevant for some reason to the Grateful Dead and the Velvet Underground. So to get to the bottom of this and to narrow the conversation a little, we decided to specifically compare and contrast the Grateful Dead's Dark Star with the Velvet Underground's own jammed out juggernaut, Sister Ray. We settled on a few live performances of each, which we'll get to a little later. But first, let's kind of address Mia Wallace's question. I'm assuming we'd all consider ourselves Velvet Underground people. So Dan, what is your kind of personal history current feelings about the vu uh yeah i uh i love the the vu definitely a, a vu person over a, a dead person uh, <laughs> my dog's name is lou reed um <laughs> i have the banana tattooed on my arm so uh, a, a, a little bit of a fan yeah just a, uh, <laughs> just a little fan yeah uh, as for history, I think I I think I got into them because Nirvana like covered uh, "Here She Comes Now." Oh and, yeah, uh, I think you know that made me. I always was back way back in the day, you know, getting all these you know rare Nirvana things, and then I would Napster the uh, you know whatever the original was, and so you know, got me right in there. Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd call myself a pretty big fan of Velvet Underground. Maybe not a tattoo, you know, on my body type of fan, but um, <laughs> you know, I've I've just absolutely adored them. I don't exactly know, I think, like where that history began, but probably similar to Dan, it was through another band because so many bands basically, you know, are very explicit about how much they love Velvet Underground. You know what I mean? And you just kind of fall into them. I think in that that sort of sense but uh but yeah i mean i completely adore them and you know grateful dead uh like not at all not not even a little <laughs> all right well we're gonna dive a little deeper into that i mean for me okay. yeah i'm definitely a great uh velvet underground person um i um have i'm really like deeply deeply obsessed i think i've you know just through my life it was like i got the um velvet underground and nico album was just utterly obsessed you know, ended up getting white light, white heat, thought there's no way this could be as good. I liked it even more. Um, you know, there are times in my life where the self-titled I like the most loaded. I like the most, um, you know, I listen to every live thing, no matter how bad quality it is or whatever. Um, I have just completely, completely obsessed over them for a very long time. Um, as for the grateful dead, I'm pretty new to them. And I, you know, would describe myself as kind of a recent convert. I think that I, you know, actually last year, I talked about it on our old podcast, but I went for the first time to this Dark Star Jubilee, which is like an annual thing. And at that time, I just sort of got dragged along to it by a friend who's really into them and that whole kind of jam band scene. You know, he promised me it'd be a good time. And in preparation, I was like kind of listening and trying to get to know them. I really had a negative opinion of them before um, without really diving deep at all. I watched the Long Strange Trip documentary, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about. Um, and started to get really weirdly fascinated by them. And then ever since then, I mean, I've spent a whole year, I've listened to tons and tons of shows and really kind of learned what, you know, maybe it'll change and evolve, but what, you know, eras of Grateful Dead I really like. But Darren, you were about to say, I want to hear more, like actual 
distaste, repulsion for the Grateful uh, Dead? No, no, no. I, I, it's not fair to say that because I really haven't like listened to them a lot, but I've just always shied away. I mean, I, I don't know why. You know, I think it kind of has a little bit to do with what you mentioned about indie circles. You know what I mean? I'm not necessarily saying I'm like in an indie circle, but you know, going through all the my own history, I guess, of you know listening to different music and stuff. Like, of course, I heard of the Grateful Dead, but you know, they seem, they always kind of seemed like a, like a dad rock type of band. Like just like, Oh, <laughs> like, no, I don't want to listen well, like to the, new, a bunch the noodling of, like, and the yeah, like, just a lot of guitar noodling. Like, I mean, I love guitars. Dan knows, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I was always like, that's too much. You know, that's going too far. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Dan? Too much guitar for Darren. I love it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of have like a, a, a love hate uh, relationship with the Grateful Dead. I I got into them in like high school, and you know I I liked them, and I I still like them. But I'm like the only person that I I think the studio stuff's a little little better, uh, especially the uh-huh. the earlier. I like the earlier, you know, sort of like roots country, you know, kind of yeah. kind of. They're like a better birds uh, <laughs> to me. Um, I always kind of like the 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 jamming and and the live shows. You know, they could be pleasurable enough, like to put on in the background while you like work around the house or you know do some yard work or something. But actively listening to them uh, is kind of annoying because, like Darren said, you know, just too much noodling guitar. <laughs> I, I I think that's why I like the studio. It's you know it's got a confinedness to it. You know, it can only be so long. And uh, yeah, yeah. So I could I could do without the noodling, which uh, is not a common position on the bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something weird because it's like they're maybe this is kind of what you're getting at, uh, Darren. That it's, it's like something about virtuosity, but it has no kind of hard edge to it. It's not like you know Jimmy Page is going to shred mm-hmm. your face off, which exactly. we all went through phases where we were really into. There's something like really just like you know this. I still actually, no matter how much I like the Grateful Dead, cannot stand their sort of visual aesthetic, like with this like these bears that are rainbows and stuff. Like there's something so. <laughs> you know that just like rubs me the wrong way i'm like you know i want to see like jim morrison with his fucking shirt off you know and like robert plant's like you know huge bulge you know something <laughs> awesome you know like long hair you know i don't know like you get what i'm saying darren yeah for sure and like when you talk about like jimmy page versus like noodling like you know like there are songs you know maybe it's like stairway to heaven or like achilles last Stand, whatever like they are just like memorable guitar moments you know that are that are crafted but when you are just sort of like jamming you know you just kind of get lost and like there just doesn't seem to be any you know moment like that and we'll get into that when we start talking about like dark star like you know what i'm saying like i i I get what you mean and also just the sheer like volume of output you know like how many how many live uh you know led zeppelin records can you get i think there's like two or three you know and like they're they're all pretty badass um but yeah i mean when there's like a million like dead shows you you could choose from just you know just on spotify not not even getting into like bootlegs or anything it it becomes like overwhelming and stuff and then it's really hard to you know as a novice you know getting into it it's hard to pick like you know what what you know which show should i even bother listening you know especially when it's three hours long exactly when you see a track that's like 37 minutes exactly you know, <laughs> my god what part of it's gonna really like hook me into this you know? you know wow yeah 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 you know for me i think it was sort of dividing the grateful dead up into they're kind of like a couple different bands um 
throughout different periods. Mm-hmm. You know, they're sort of like a psychedelic garage rock kind of thing. At one point, they move into that kind of folk Americana thing. You were like, you were talking about Dan. Um, they get into like a almost jazz fusion kind of vibe. They get into this like dancey disco dead. It's called, and you know, you can kind of like pick your favorites and stuff. Um, but so basically, what I wanted to establish here is that this is kind of the perspective we're coming from. I think I'm. I would consider myself converted. I'm somebody farther along than you guys, but I used to kind of share some of your negative opinions like while I was on the outside looking in. Um, So it's like, I started asking myself like, is it bullshit? Why, you know, why do people feel this way when the, the Velvet Underground is like the coolest thing ever? And I think there's really a lot of similarities there. And so, you know, I thought we could together see if we can hash this out and see if, if it does make sense. So let's talk about some of those similarities. You know, there's some, um, kind of eerie coincidences i would say <laughs> like both bands start out being called the warlocks um and i found out they they both changed sort of independently because there was a third band called the warlocks that had already put an album out um their debut albums come out five days apart in march 1967 um Obviously, that ignites like they both have such cult followings. They're almost like the two greatest cult bands mm-hmm. in, you know, all of music history, I would say. Um, maybe, Dan, you can talk a little bit about, you know, they both sort of their forming moments are at these really fascinating like multimedia events. Um can you talk about like Andy Warhol's exploding plastic inevitable? Yeah. Um, in fact, I, I went to the the Warhol Museum uh, like two years ago, and they have a um, a room that is like you know supposed to be the plastic inevitable, uh, and it was like Lou Reed's face like zooming in and out. It, it was these like weird um, multimedia like he would play like three, four, five different movies like on the screen at once, all like very disorienting. Uh, flashing uh, lights and stuff, and then a band would play, and that band was the Velvet Underground, um, who were just making like a lot of racket. You know, they weren't really playing like the songs we came to know on, uh, you know, Vu and Nico. Uh, in fact, the first uh, Plastic Inevitable uh, show was for uh, some dentist convention. Um, <laughs> so yeah, um, and they didn't know, you know, what the fuck was going on, uh, and a lot of people left and that's basically the velvet underground's like first uh p- professional show uh ever uh-huh. so it's like a you know it's like a multimedia thing but like what i mean it's touring around right what yeah. are people doing are they like taking drugs and like hanging out is that the scene yeah i think yeah or is it more of like an art <laughs> museum thing or what is it yeah it's like a art you know i guess it was like bringing uh the new york club scene kind of to to the masses or or such Okay. Um, I don't really know where all it went, um, but I it did tour around. I think it was just the East Coast, um, but I don't remember off the top of my head. Should look that up. Um, but yeah, it was just this super, you know, uh, annoyingly arty thing almost. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but just so fascinating that they're like the house band for this thing, mm-hmm. and they're like, you know, it's this experimental thing, and they're like you know supposed to be providing the music and they're almost like honing their you know their skills and their vibe at this place and then at the same exact time across the country um do you know as much about ken kesey's acid tests i don't know as much but i do know about them and it's sort of the same thing like so weirdly i mean his is like the the acid test is basically the hippie version of the exploding plastic uh. inevitable you know they're touring around on a, a psychedelic colored bus which is like really like you know when when a lot of people think of the 60s you know you think of that like 
you know, colored bus. And that, you know, that's what it's from. The acid Tie-dye test. color, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then they would play these shows. The Dead was the house band. Uh, everybody, he would give everybody acid. Um, and so It was in a, um, in Punch. You paid a yeah, dollar to yeah. get like a cup of Punch. And so everybody's tripping. And I think part of the point of it, right, was like to sort of, spread awareness of this new amazing drug and this experience you know pry open the whole west coast third eye (laughs) there we go getting back to last episode (laughs) yeah but they they're like remarkably similar you know this this sort of unknown band at the time um touring around and and playing for people who probably wouldn't have seen them otherwise you know yeah and they're honing their skills just like Mm -hmm. the velvet underground and you know, I think that's why they start to get into these like long jams because they're they're playing all night long. And they also talk about like on that Long Strange Trip documentary about how it was like a really freeing experience because everybody's so fucked up that like sometimes they would just go up and like play a few notes and it just like wasn't happening and they would just stop. <laughs> and other times they would play until like six in the morning and they could just try stuff. And sometimes it would just descend into like pure noise and stuff like that. Um were you aware of any of this, Darren? And isn't it kind of like fascinating how they're both coming up at the same time in such similar circumstances? Yeah, I think I may have read a bit about the acid tests, maybe uh, in like some sort of like sixties culture class in college, right? But um, but yeah, I didn't really. I had no idea, absolutely no idea, that the two of them were like basically doing this at the same time. Like I never really associated like VU's history at all with like the Grateful Dead also being you know contemporaries basically yeah and just like the fact that these you know these like so basically it's it's almost like both are starting as almost celebrations of drug culture 60s drug counterculture um this kind of like subversive element that's that's growing in this late 60s moment and you know just amazing that they like you know the exploding plastic inevitable and the acid tests are pretty short-lived little things but their legacies sort of carry on all the way to today through these two just enormously influential um cult bands um on top of that i think musically there are really a lot of similarities here in the sense that both bands are very experimental and um you know we all know the velvet underground and how you know john kale is like you know, he's this guy who's kind of like studying all of this avant-garde, like European avant-garde art and stuff. And Lou Reed is, you know, he's kind of like a street poet, but he's obviously into this kind of like, you know, the same kind of like weird French, um, I don't know, existentialist shit that like Jim Morrison is into, you know, this kind of like, um, it's pretty pushing the edges, the pushing the boundaries of pop music kind of scene. Um, at the same time, you've got the Grateful Dead, which is sort of interesting because they come from this mixture of sort of musicians that come from like the blues or folk. And then you've got kind of like the Eastern guy, one of the drummers. You've got Phil Lesh, the bass player, is actually like a trained and studied kind of avant-garde composer before he switches to playing bass with this band. Um, and so they're both bringing these elements. I also was really fascinated to learn that you know, they're both kind of really taking a page out of the jazz, you know, the free jazz thing is kind of exploding at this time. And I think these are two examples of that kind of spreading into, um, you know, pop rock music. You know what I mean, Dan? Yeah. Um, I know they both, um, like really, uh, admired, uh, Ornette Coleman and Cecil Taylor. 
And mm-hmm. uh, uh, Jerry ended up like playing on a really late, uh, I think it was in the 90s, like Cecil Taylor record and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think on the Long Strange Trip documentary, it's it's really fascinating. I'm, I'm actually fascinated. We'll talk more about it. But the rhythm guitarist, Bob Weir, he's like talking about how he got really into these jazz pianists like uh, McCoy Tyner, for example, who plays on uh, with Coltrane, like in the Love Supreme era. Right. Um, and how he's fascinated about the way the chords are arranged so that there's this space for um, Coltrane to kind of weave through. You know what I mean? Like you can't, you don't just play like a C major chord and, you know, and that when you do that, Coltrane has to like solo on the top, you know, mm-hmm. but when you play like these kind of crazy sevenths and ninths and blah, diminished blah, 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 you know, like there's space for him to weave inside of it. And so Bob Weir like kind of takes his rhythm guitar styles from that so that Jerry Garcia can solo and weave within it. And um, at the same time, you've got, you know, the Velvet Underground really into this kind of like scronking, you know, Coleman, Cecil Taylor, Albert Eiler um, shit. You know, Darren, is any of this kind of, how do I say, surprising to you? I mean, when you think Grateful Dead, I assume you don't think like avant-garde that much. No, I mean, definitely not. And, you know, maybe it's just like this image of like an older Jerry Garcia that is just sort of like stuck Mm -hmm. in my head, you know what I mean? And I again, I kind of revert back to the idea of like this sort of dad rock jam type of thing not not so experimental you know what i mean um when it comes to like velvet underground you know to me it's like you're hearing something you're hearing people just like break all the rules and Uh completely you know disregard any of the you know right you know like the the beatles and what everybody else was doing in the 60s and stuff whereas to me even the way you're kind of describing it like grateful dead kind of still fits right into that except they're just sort of bringing you know, a little bit of free jazz influence and stuff, but they're still like, you know, it just seems like they're still like a I, within the the boundaries. I think you, what you just said is like a is is what a lot of people think, uh, and maybe like not such a great point. Like you know, the Velvet Underground, it's like they're breaking all the rules, which yeah, of course. But then everybody sort of, or a lot of people feel like you know, the Grateful Dead is sort of within those boundaries. But really, when you think about it, like they're breaking a shit ton of rules too. I don't know if it's just like it's become cliche and you forget that they made the cliche, you know, kind of mm-hmm. thing like maybe or, yeah. or what, but, but you know, like not a lot of bands were, were doing 30 minute jams or, or jams at all or, or any of the, the crap they were up to, you know, like it, it's like the experimentalness of the dead is, and boundary pushing is, is sort of like lost uh, for some reason. Yeah, you know, I want to return to this, but I think one of the major problems is that the Grateful Dead didn't break up, like, so fast, the way that the Velvet Underground (laughs) Mm -hmm. did, you know? Um, The Grateful Dead toured literally until death, Um, and, well, until Jerry Garcia died. still are kind of touring with uh, John Mayer now. John Mayer, yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, so, and we'll talk more about this, but it's like... If you think about it, it's like it's such a huge chunk of their career is now that. And mm-hmm. it's almost like they they reach somehow. I mean, it's almost fascinating. You got to watch this documentary, Darren, Long Strange Trip. I really cannot recommend it enough. But their height of popularity is like late 80s, early 90s. They 
somehow have just been sort of chugging along, playing completely by their own rules. I think a genuinely uh, progressive sort of experimental band. And then they kind of like settle into this kind of middle age, you know, I don't want to denigrate it too much for a bunch of deadheads email us. Um, I'll just <laughs> say that it, it, it's the later stuff I'm still learning. I know there's probably a lot to f- discover in that period, but it's not something I've been able to get so into yet. But they settle sort of into a um, familiarity, kind of like almost a nostalgia thing. And um, and that's what we think of. I mean, even well, yeah, now. That, yeah, I mean, that's. I think what you're describing is exactly what I kind of like remember Mm-hmm. seeing like through the 90s anything re- regarding like grateful dead it's like these old guys and like only older yeah. people were listening to them because they're like reminiscing about the 60s and 70s you know what i mean like but with their like old tie-dye shirts on still from the, <laughs> the 60s you know i know I, mean? I know yeah something like gets kind of like outdated about it and mm-hmm. I, I even to this day i keep like when i think of jerry garcia in my mind i see him old for some mm-hmm. reason yeah um, yeah me too I remember actually, I'm trying to retrain myself because I remember when I was young and I discovered the doors for some reason, the first, like my first image of him was when he was like kind of fat with a beard and stuff. (laughs) And I had to train myself to see like the cool, badass shirtless, you know, Jim Morrison from, you know, 1966 or whatever. Um, and it made the music a lot better. I'll, I'll be honest. So, um, so okay, so wait, now we're kind of like. Can I say something? Do you guys do you guys remember those like old infomercials for like music collections that would show up on like VH1 I, or whatever, and they would yeah, about, like yeah. a box set or something? Yeah. I swear there was like a Grateful Dead one that would like always be playing some sort of like maybe yeah. I'm collection sure. of these great concerts or whatever. Yeah. yeah, it's weird to think like why is why why is the old image like burned into our brains? Yeah. you know. But it sounds like we're. You know, we're kind of gravitating into the differences now. Okay. So I think there are a lot of similarities. And like we were kind of talking about, I really do think both were genuinely experimental bands. And so maybe one big difference is that one went on, you know, kind of past their prime and the other one never got a chance to, which is something we'll return to as well. Um, but there are also another, uh, a lot of like really fascinating differences, I think. So despite they actually shared the stage on a few occasions, these bands in the late 60s, um, but the Velvet Underground really seemed to hate the Grateful Dead and actually the entire San Francisco scene that the Grateful Dead comes from. Here are some choice quotes from Lou Reed. Um, it's just tedious, a lie, and untalented. They can't play and they certainly can't write. The airplane, the dead, all of them. They're amateur. They can't play. Jerry's not a good guitar player. It's a joke. And the airplane is even worse, if that's possible. (laughs) All those people are the most untalented boars that have ever lived. So why do you think, despite all these kind of similarities of where they're coming from, like why did he and why do a lot of current Velvet Underground fans feel this way? I I guess it's like the hippie thing, you know, like. You got to think like Velvet Underground was from New York City uh, when New York was like very scary and seedy and, you know, had Mm -hmm. drug use was was heroin and like, you know, not not fun drugs. Uh, And then, you know, the dead, the hippies are all, you know, happy, go lucky, you know, LSD. You know, it's like a color. Even just if you close your eyes and like think of the Grateful Dead. Or you think of like tie dye colors, you yeah. know everything's like bright, shimmery. Velvet Underground, you know, I, 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 in my mind, I see them in black and white. You know, it's dark yeah, sunglasses, yeah. grainy, you know, like to see. It's, yep. yeah, like basically the polar opposite of of the hippie scene. And I mean, it's really like strange to even know that they're going on at the same time. You know, right? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I can, I can totally imagine 
somebody like Lou Reed at the time or like fans at the time kind of looking at that scene and thinking like how inauthentic these people are. You know what I mean? Like they're just high, you know, like Velvet Underground, they're not singing about flowers in your hair and all that kind of stuff. No, exactly. Like, uh-huh. And Lou also was like a huge dick and would say dick things <laughs> about basically any band <laughs> that anyone asked him about too. So, you know, <laughs> take it with a grain yeah. of salt a little bit. You know, I think I, I had sort of an epiphany as we were preparing for the show, and I want to get your take on this, but I sort of realized that it's almost like in the 60s, there are two strands of sort of 60s culture, or even in the sense of experimental art. Um, and it, it, it really neatly sort of divides between like an East Coast, West Coast thing. You know, like the West Coast is kind of an optimism about this culture like a, a serious utopian kind of optimism and the idea that like lsd or any kind of drugs are sort of like the key to harmony and people getting along and progress and stuff like that um whereas on the east coast you've got more of this kind of like you know it's not about acid it's more like all the shit that the velvet underground sings about like speed and you know heroin um it's dark it's depressing it's shitty you know it's like um there's this real kind of nihilism to it and if you even think about you know i don't you know i wish i could see that exhibit like this exploding plastic inevitable thing but you know i gotta imagine it's not about how bright the future is you know it's more about like this kind of self-aware intelligentsia kind of thing like deconstructing art you know what i mean Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, if anything, it's like, you know, dystopian. It's so like, like, when you walk into like the exhibit, there's a three or four screens. I can't, it's been a couple years, but you're like basically surrounded by like videos and they're, and they're not like, you know, a normal movie or something. It's like, like one of them is literally somebody like, like Lou Reed standing against the wall. And then somebody taking a camera like very close to his face and just zooming in and out as quick as they can. You know, it's like and the it's scary. Yeah, it's like scary and it's bright and and not not bright like the way the Grateful Dead like bright in actual like light. Um and and just like disorienting and, and like if you didn't if you were like those dentists or or somebody who didn't know what was going on, like probably pretty scary. Yeah, you kinda know what I'm saying, Darren? Yeah, like <clears throat> you know, what I was trying to like formulate while you were like speaking, um, you know, to me, it's like this East coast is less, obviously less optimistic. It's more, they're like trying to reveal the layers or like peel back the layers and take like a really close look at reality that like, yeah, they're, you know, this is a true human nature. You know, people are drug dealers. They're, shady they want to take advantage of people they're, they're like you know that dark alleyway in new york that you see that you shouldn't walk down like mm-hmm. or this really shady nightclub owner that's like clearly like a smack dealer doing other things like they're you know like and it's it's like coming to grips with like this is this is the reality you know what i mean like this is real life not what these guys are doing with their you know hat taking lsd and trying to like you know blind themselves to the real you know, yeah this yeah, is the like material world yeah, yeah 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 it's hard for me to articulate it but like you can just it, it's so it's like a stark contrast mm-hmm. between the two yeah it's like polar opposites and you know i i was like having epiphany after epiphany because it's really fascinating like if you think about something like uh jack kerouac's on the road right mm-hmm. um 
What's that? What's that guy that was hanging out with them? You know, he's like Neil uh, Cassidy. Moriarty. Neil Cassidy, yeah, the real guy. You know, he's actually part of the the Merry Pranksters, like the bus that Ken Kesey is driving around, and he's hanging out with the Grateful Dead and stuff. But on the road is like this formative text somehow for both of these movements, and yet, you know, a lot of people read on the road and they see it as like this guy just searching for like transcendence or something, and. Yet you can also read it. I don't know how much time you guys have spent with this book or if it's been a long time since you read it, but you can also read it and it can be kind of depressing. Like Mm -hmm. this like Dean Moriarty guy is just like, or Neil Cassidy is leaving a bunch of fucking chaos everywhere he goes. Like he's just chasing this dream and like fucking people over everywhere and everything's sad and shitty at the end. And it's almost like, you know, when I read it, I was like, am I reading the same book as everybody else? Because I thought this was supposed to be like some really kind of like cool hippie thing, you know? And it's almost like you can take the same thing and read it two different ways. And that's literally what is happening on the East and West Coast at this time. I think about other stuff like experimental music at this time. You know, you think about like, you know, it's like this, these bands have such similar influences. Something like, um, you know, you talked about Cecil Taylor, John Coltrane, um, you know, Ornette Coleman. Albert Eiler, Tony Conrad, I wrote some of these down. Lamont Young, okay? Take Lamont Young and just be like, remember how we were talking about, like, there's this, we talked about him on our old podcast, and there's this kind of Eastern spirituality to him mm-hmm. and to a lot of these avant-garde people, like, um, um, God, who am I thinking of? Oh, Terry Riley, right? Like, this mysticism. And yet, also, Lamont Young is kind of breaking music down into, like, what it really is, which is just random you know, like the random matter of the universe collided and made people who for some reason make music and one day this whole earth will be swallowed up and disappear one day. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> am I going on too like too far? No, I I, I get you. Uh, you know, it, it, you can get whatever you want from these influences and it's amazing that both bands are like taking it in such different directions. Yeah, I mean, really, yeah, Lamont Young is a, is a great example of that because yeah, he's he does have like tons of that like uh spiritual stuff like i went to his uh dream house exhibit thing in in new york Mm -hmm. um and the whole thing is about like uh or at the time it switches but when i went it was like uh these tones that were uh based on some uh eastern religion that i don't know anything about you know and they moved in regards to that and the sun and all this which is kind of like hippie bullshit uh you know if you look at it that way but then if you just listen to the music it is like it's more of a, a velvet underground thing you know these big drones like uh john kale's viola it was that kind of stuff yeah. you know it's so really yeah it, it's which part of it do you want to do you want to uh accept or or read into or or, or take you know yeah are you kind of buying this darren yeah, I mean, I mean, it all kind of goes back to what we were, you know, talking about the in what you mentioned, like the different ways of reading, literally the same story. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, it's it's totally shocking. I, I'm I'm kind of like dumbfounded, like just having this discussion because I came to this not really knowing a lot about the Grateful Dead, and you know, it makes a lot more sense thinking of it, thinking in terms of like you know it's an interpretation of what's going on at the same time you know what i mean it's not two different eras not two different time periods it's the same time period and one has a totally different take on it yeah not not just them obviously a lot of others like you just mentioned 
Yeah, I think it's kind of amazing. If you're thinking about like, am I a Grateful Dead person or am I a Velvet Underground person? Yeah. You could probably get the answer. Like, do you feel inspired or do you feel depressed when you finish on the road? You know? um, <laughs> exactly. You know, stuff like, you know, I also thought about there's almost these two strands of like experimental jazz, which we'll talk about as we get into these pieces in a second. But um, huge influence there. But some jazz, you know, I wonder if you agree with me, um, Dan, like some of this free jazz is about transcendence like in the same way john coltrane is quite spiritual you know mm-hmm. or um there, there's like this spiritual el- element about chasing something chasing transcendence something higher you know um on the other side you have people like cecil taylor um who are destruction you know free jazz as destroying all the boundaries of what music can be you know he's literally smashing the piano um you know, it's almost like the difference between Andy Warhol and Ken Kesey that we were talking about earlier, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, with the the free jazz stuff, yeah, exactly the same way. I mean, Pharaoh Sanders, Alice Coltrane, you know, all that stuff's like heavy, yeah. heavy uh, with the uh, Eastern, you know, religions and all that stuff. But again, you can read it the other way and read about the, uh, you know, the deconstruction of, of music and and uh the the freewheelingness of it all and uh again you know on how what do you like about it i think says uh which which one of these people you are a dead or a or a vu yeah but does it feel like i mean can you do that with the grateful dead as well or doesn't it feel like it's like too late or too many steps down at that point you can't read the grateful dead and feel nihilistic i don't think you can because i mean one it's just like such an ingrained part of the culture that they're the opposite, you know, of of the the nihilism and everything. But also, just you know, things, and maybe it is the culture, but but things about them just are incongruent with with that. The 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 bright colors, the the dancing bear yeah. logos, the you know the 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 happy drugs and stuff. You know, it's just it just like sort of is the antithesis of like what we think of when we think of those uh, different subsets of of people and you, cultures. Do you think, like, Gabe, since you're, like, now sort of converted, as you mentioned, like, are are they sort of similar to the Velvet Underground where, like, I think it was one of those articles you posted, um, Dan, about, like, describing it, like, you, you can't just like a little bit of the Velvet Underground or, like, a couple songs, you know, uh, same with, like, a the Coltrane's, I would imagine, like, you can't just, like, sort of dabble, like, either you, like, mm. are really into it or you're just, like, this is not for me, like, is the Grateful Dead like this, too? I mean, I think definitely, but um, I don't know, because there's something, I mean, we'll, we'll get into this, but for me, it was like, honestly, kind of recognizing the similarity between the Velvet Underground and the Grateful Dead that kind of got me into them, because I realized that the early stuff, like from the, the 60s, when they're like really this kind of psychedelic garage rock band, um, I was like, this is amazing. I mean, I love shit like this. I love, you know, like 13th Floor Elevators. Shout out to Rocky Erickson, uh, who passed away just a couple days ago, by the way. Um, This kind of like psychedelic garage rock, all the stuff that's on that Nuggets, those Nuggets compilations and stuff. And like, I was like, this fits right on here. Why are they rejected? And then it was like, you know, and then you sort of move into these other periods and it's like sort of confusing you know it doesn't sound the same anymore and you're kind of you know i'm struggling to get into like the jazz fusion kind of vibe and you know maybe you kind of find the strands of the stuff you like and hear it kind of getting there but it's like you know so a long way to answer your question i i think honestly for me it was best to think of the grateful dead as like five different bands and and yet when you get into one of those versions 
you start to kind of get obsessed in a weird way where you want to like keep chasing and finding more. You know, you can you kind of relate to this with some other group, uh, Dan? Uh, I, 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 I can't think of another example off the top of my head like that, but, um, you know, the Grateful Dead, I, like I sort of said at the top, like I sort of am just a kind of fan, you know, like I, yeah, you kind of have like your dead. Yeah. Like like, I like, like you said, I like the, the sixties psychedelic, like I, Anthem of the Sun's like a great record and, uh, Ox of Mox or whatever that one with the the weird, like dick skeleton on the front. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and then you know i really love the uh the sort of folky uh americana uh couple records but yeah like i'm not like you know i'm not hardcore into it um you know i don't I, i'll listen to a live show here and there you know when i'm just around the house but I, you know if somebody asked me what my favorite show is ever you know i don't i don't really know i honestly i, I usually yeah. just pick ones that are like from the state i live in or like venues <laughs> yeah. i've been to just because it's like kind of cool yeah yeah um well okay so you know i think we can continue touching on this but we should dive into the specifics maybe hashing out some of these huge philosophical aesthetic topics that we're getting at will be a little bit easier um when we get into actually dark star versus sister ray so i kind of gave you guys uh three incarnations of both tracks we'll start with dark star um, and I wanted to give you guys a sense of how this, you know, very improvisatory piece, obviously, sort of how it worked and how it evolved over this sort of early period that we're talking about. Um, so first, we got a shorter performance at the Carousel in San Francisco on uh, February 14th, 1968. A longer one at the Fillmore West, also in San Francisco, um, in 1969 this is from the famous live slash dead album and another very famous these are actually all very famous performances <laughs> um but this one's very long um from august 27th 1972 at ken kesey's dairy farm in veneta oregon um or I, it might just be a benefit for his farm at a nearby location i couldn't get a i couldn't figure out a straight answer but let's try to describe what this song sounds like um maybe taking each one separately or maybe just kind of as a whole, what is Dark Star? I mean, as a whole, it's like the most jammy jam band thing you could possibly do. (laughs) You know, it seems like there's only like a handful of lyrics um, that just sort of Uh like, it really seems like that's not the important, you know, like a lot of bands like live or something, you know, when they are jamming a little bit and then they finally, you know, kick into the lyrics, you know, the crowd goes wild because they like finally realize what song it is. The the, the Dark Star doesn't seem to be like that. If anything, it's like the lyrics are like the 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 uh, the turn off of the song. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's just, it is the like quintessential like if you think of a jam band. Uh, th- this is sort of what you think of, and maybe not the first performance that, w- that you put on here, the '68 one, but uh, definitely the '69, and I think especially the '72. The the '68 one um, is like ca- yeah, it's shorter, yeah, it's much shorter. It, it's pretty close to like what the studio version sounds like. I I, I pop that on too, uh, j- just to check. Yeah, and I want to kind of like give a sense of maybe this is closer it's like fuzzier and more garage yeah. rockish to like what it might have sounded like at the acid test you know yeah yeah and you know i i appreciate that um i'll go ahead and say that that was probably my favorite one uh okay of them. okay um what, what do you what do you want to add darren yeah i mean i would i would sort of describe the song as having like you said this it has a section or like a little bit of 
structure that's built around these lyrics, right? And like, you know, it, it comes together really well in this six minute version because you don't mean you don't wander off and completely lose yourself in whatever, you know, is happening because that you know, the the Dark Star lyrics and all of that are there. The song kind of stays contained, right? Um, and then, you know, you have to forgive me because I've listened to these things so many damn times. Like, when you get to these longer ones, I feel like it repeats. Like, the, it does the lyric section at least twice, maybe, right? Like, kind of towards the end. I don't know. Maybe I'm totally <laughs> off on that. So, actually, the 1969 one... Um, does the lyric section i guess we should i mean probably anybody listening to this knows but it's almost like a little poem like a sort of three four stanza poem um this is the lyric section and there's kind of like a bouncy something like like an interesting kind of bouncy riff it's almost like um circular hypnotic to that yeah and you've got this kind of like you know so you've got this like organ line that's like like descending and you know it's and you've got like the hand percussion specifically in these early ones um and it's just like kind of this, you know, weird kind of almost slowed down circus or something kind of jam. And then there's like this poem. And, you know, so the first one we we looked at is, um, like you said, short. And it's almost like just the song with a little bit of um, soloing over that kind of like riff. Um, by the time we get to 1969, it does do it does that. Um, although actually it takes like, you know, something like seven or eight minutes to kind of form Mm -hmm. right which i think is really fascinating because it's almost like you know a a quote this is a very grateful dead quote i think is that um the um dark star is always playing somewhere in the universe you know and they just sort (laughs) of tap into it you know um right so that tells you everything you need to know about their philosophy but i kind of like how it sort of imitates that because it's like in this performance it's just sort of random nothing you know is happening i did and it sort of comes together i I liked i liked that about the 69 i i like noticed that you know like it it feels like it takes them a minute to get it built up it it like really reminded me of like my bloody valentine uh like holocaust thing you know how like the the whole it's famous that it like takes like kind of forever to get like built up and then you're just building and building building this wall of sound and then finally you know it like you get it and uh you know uh dark star and sort of that performance of the ones we listen to in in general like gave me that feeling which was like kind of cool um i feel like it would be a little better if i was there uh you know it's like when you're sitting at home or at work and and that's happening tripping also would help right yeah exactly yeah yeah maybe um you know you're sitting at work you're you're just like all right you know are they fucking tuning their instruments or or what you know let's let's get it going (laughs) well so yeah you know yeah I mean, I I like the the long kind of build up, and I you know, Gabe, even though it's a little <laughs> silly the way it's described, but like you know, it it almost seems like there's no they have no real you know plan as to like okay, here's when they're, you know we're gonna do this forty eight times, and then you know the lyrics right, are gonna start. Right. It doesn't feel that way at all. It just kind of feels like we're just they're just feeling it out. It's like natural, you know. Yeah, we've all we've all played music live we've kind of jammed out and just like felt when it felt right to you know move yeah. on and stuff and it, it really feels natural it's really what comes after that section that i kind of right okay really get lost in yeah so to return to your question on the 69 it basically completely falls apart um mm-hmm. we we build up very slowly to like this verse tone you know this poem part kind of thing and um 
then it just sort of like descends into random chaos. And this is like, like we were kind of saying, it's like, this is almost like their loosest composition. And it's, I think it's weird if you, when you know about the Grateful Dead and then you come to them and you find out that they actually write incredibly tight pop songs, you know, it's like, it's not all Dark Star, um, <laughs> but Dark Star is so loose. It's clearly meant to just go off in whatever direction. It's almost like just the short poem. We'll do that. Uh, we'll build to that, do it, and then go wherever the hell we want. Mm-hmm. But the 1969 one actually re- returns in the end um, somehow, despite going into like complete random chaos um, to the uh, the verse part, the poem Okay, I was part. right. <laughs> um, the 1972 one never comes back. It okay. just like goes and you know there's something like thematically interesting about this approach because again if you take that like you know quote and the subject matter and everything it's like the song forms out of you know nothing and it becomes something um which i actually really i i get the like song part stuck in my head a lot and then it's thematically appropriate for it to just sort of fall apart into you know, just random matter. I mean, this is a song about a black hole, you know? We should have done this episode a couple of months ago when everybody was, like, into black holes, you know? And probably, <laughs> sure, um, that picture, like, yeah. <laughs> but I think this is so indicative of, like, what The Grateful Dead is all about and, like, how The Velvet Underground is so different in the sense that they're writing a song about a black hole. And a black hole, you know, to me, <laughs> is kind of a horrifying thought because it's, like, the end of the universe or something it just like scrambles meaning and logic and everything you know like who knows what's in there it's like this kind of nihilist presence you know that makes it impossible for me to believe in god or something um for the grateful dead it's like a pathway to another you know to enlightenment or something like to another way of being you know they're like describing this like Dark star crashes, pouring its light into ashes. Reason tatters. The forces tear loose from the axis, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, shall we go, you and I, while we can, through the transitive nightfall of diamonds? You know, whatever that means. But it's an evocative image. But you know what I mean? It's like the song sort of falls apart because that's like what's happening to their perception. Or You know, there's something like it makes sense to me. Like, like you know, by the time you get to the lyrics, it's like there, there they are at the you know, uh, black hole or whatever. And then the next sequence that follows is kind of like that trip through to this. Yeah. Other side or whatever. Like what would happen? Like when your body disintegrates right. as you pass through a black hole or something, it's almost like trying to do that. And it's such a lofty theme the yeah, great, yeah, yeah. or the velvet underground would never write about something like this. But I think the velvet underground would be more like me where if they looked at a black hole, they would be like, fuck, nothing matters and nothing means anything, you know, exactly. like, let's burn this motherfucker down you know the grateful dead is you know you know what i'm saying dan yeah no i get that and and you know that's that's funny that you can't even sort of read especially the first like little half of those lyrics like nihilistically mm-hmm. you know if if you want to uh the whole whatever transcendental diamonds lower, yeah, a right, little hard right. to read that that way but you know what i mean um but yeah i mean it, that is like a cool kind of like conceptually it is like sort of a cool piece and i think the 69 version sort of does it best like i i i I liked how it did come back you know like it's sort of impressive to like have a song you know build from nothing it it plays and then you like sort of lose it you're like oh they fucking off track now and then (laughs) oh shit you know and sort of like it's it's not even just like oh 
now we're back. You know, it's sort of like, it's almost like gradually rebuilding and everything and, yeah. and sort of surprises you. And, you know, it's impressive. The 72, like when it just gets lost in it, never comes back in it. You know, I, I like, honestly, the first time I listened to it, it sort of just, you know, we had put it in like these playlists, uh, you know, it sort of just ends. And I thought like, oh, is this like split into two tracks? Like, did you fuck up? Um, and I like, looked it up, you know, and everything. And because uh, it just sort of seemed like, you know, they lost yeah. it. But I guess that's interesting, too, because, you know, maybe some nights they lose it. Some nights they don't, you know, sometimes it comes back. You know, that is sort of like an interesting uh, um, experience. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes they use it like to sort of um, move into a different piece entirely, which is what happens sort of at that uh, Veneta performance. And sometimes they like go into other songs and stuff and then like find their way back to the conclusion of Dark Star, you know, yeah. like <laughs> an hour later. Um, and, you know, so Darren, does this kind of strike you as something that's like, you know, we talked about uh, the Olivia, the Olivia Tremor control and the sort of like experimental stuff that they do sometimes being more interesting to think about than to listen to. Is that kind of where you were? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, because when I'm listening, I'm not imagining any of this stuff. I'm just kind of imagining a handful of guys on this like festival stage kind of just, you know, feeding off of each other and just playing uh-huh. heads down, you know, just jamming out. And, you know, it's it's interesting but it's it's hard to you know think real philosophically about you know the other stuff that we're discussing you know again i i don't i'm not trying to make a joke here when i'm like perhaps if i were tripping <laughs> uh things would yeah. be different but honestly like i mean what you know what was the point of those people tripping on acid and then listening to this stuff well it gave them like 30 minutes to you know where let their mind go wherever the hell it was going and then have a ha- a nice soundtrack along with it you know what i mean it's hard it's hard to uh you know i'm trying to like struggle i'm struggling like imagining like what that experience is like versus what my experience is like versus what we are actually just discussing you know about the more lofty theme of the of the song yeah i mean it gets back to what you're we talking about something about this culture about like you know this path to transcendence and stuff mm-hmm. and this like real optimism this real belief that music could do that you know um and that that's kind of like the thing they're trying to do i mean i guess that tripping would be interesting or help or something but it's almost like they're trying to make a music that would do that with or without acid you know well, um, yeah i mean like the idea is it's like escapism basically right yeah and then yeah. like the velvet underground by contrast is not necessarily trying to escape it's actually like facing it like you know facing down whatever it is that the grateful dead is trying to escape from you know what i mean yeah i mean why don't why don't we jump into it we can like kind of come back and bounce back and forth but for sister ray you know i gave you guys three pieces as well we got the original studio version from 1968's white light white heat which is basically a live jam anyway um a 1969 performance at the family dog in san francisco of all places which they hated i guess um this is from the quine tapes officially released bootleg from 2001 or something like that and another 1969 performance at the matrix also in san francisco from the recently released complete matrix tapes and this one certainly wins the longest jam competition here uh clucks in at nearly 37 minutes so 
How would you describe what Sister Ray is and what they're trying to achieve with this piece? Well, first off, you know, if you ask someone to guess uh, which band would have the longest song, you know, in this playlist, mm-hmm. you would you would not guess the the Velvet Underground. I don't think <laughs> no, which right, is no. which is really funny. But um, <clears throat> for for uh, Sister Ray, um, the sixty eight and the sixty nine, it's very. Um, like very abrasive um it's just like v- from the get-go kind of in your face uh very repetitive you know it's kind of just the same chords over and over the drums like really rarely change um and then these like weird lyrics about uh shooting up and messing up the carpet and uh suck- yeah. sucking on ding-dongs uh, <laughs> right right you know it it's it's really uh a, a like a wild thing it like the the white light white heat version for in case people don't know the reason like you are it's not weird to include that one is it like literally was one take it's completely live so much so that the engineer refused to stay in the room he he pressed he right. pressed play and left and said get you know get me when you're done um uh, not listening to this noise um so you know it, it fits in there um and it basically is yeah. that i mean i think to, to somebody that that's you know, not hip to it or something, as the dead would maybe say. Um, it, it like is very noisy, uh, very like distorted, abrasive. Um, you know, in your face, kind of the opposite of of what's happening with Darkstar. Yeah, I mean, I I would also like want to mention that I feel like the White Light White Heat version is it's actually very different than these two. Yeah, other live so takes to the point where like I almost found them like disappointing just because it's it's oh. just so it's just so different like it's almost unrecognizable yeah. outside of lou reed's uh lyrics you know what i mean like <laughs> if this if it was like more if it was less lyrics right and just like a lot more uh, jamming like uh the grateful dead i would hardly say that they're the same song right um the uh-huh. white light white heat one is at least starting out like you mentioned dan kind of like the the same like kind of chord progression um you know the drums like there's like a very clear beat uh there's you know the the velvet underground style lyrics and singing from lou reed and then it kind of descends into chaos but you know and we'll i guess we'll get into it but that that version just doesn't seem to meander into like you know just like noodling territory whereas like if you as soon as the 69 one starts it's not abrasive in terms of like just right. jumping right in with the crunch yeah um especially because in fact it doesn't be it doesn't become sister ray until you hear like doc and sally inside <laughs> like oh oh okay we're listening to, to right. Sister ray now i got you yeah especially with lou's like little uh explaining of the story or whatever like oh, yeah. sort of at the beginning yeah, yeah, which yeah. is really cool yeah so if you think about this you know it's like basically the first one is just like a pure rush you know mm-hmm. it's everything is as distorted as possible it's you know just a punishing like sort of wall of noise the organ is run through distortion which john kale is yes, playing so and perfect of course he leaves the band by the time of these 1969 performances we're listening to but um huh so but there's an organ player in those yeah those yeah but too. it's uh it's i couldn't quite figure out who's playing what in fact there are points where i swear to god five people are playing something um yeah because it sounds like there's a bass guitar too <laughs> there's bass so. there's two guitars for sure there's drums 
and there's an Oregon. I don't know how they're doing this, and I couldn't find any information. It was actually driving me fucking crazy. But anyway, Jan, John Cale is not in the band, and in the studio, and there's no bass, and it's just the organ. It's distorted as shit, and it's so distorted, it's so loud that it sometimes like becomes a drone track. You know, yeah. it's like pure drone and you can tell even at points that the band cannot fucking hear what is going on because they go out of time you know Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like the it's kind of the thing and it's you know there's uh, another interesting similarity right which is that in the grateful dead documentary um bob weir kind of talks about like we realized you know at, at one point they had this epiphany of course they're on acid at this time it's like right after one of these acid tests but they don't want to make some lame ass monument that's supposed to live forever and like keep their you know dead memory alive you know they um want to like live in the quote exploding moment okay so that's why they're like let's make you know live playing like real-time stuff our thing and it's interesting that there's like this similar impulse with the velvet underground here which is like we're gonna do this one take we're gonna leave in mistakes you know and it's going to be this exploding moment that we're going to capture, you know, um, the same kind of thing. And it's interesting that this piece gets jammed and reinterpreted, I mean, to huge lengths in almost like a similar, a similar, you know, ambition as the Grateful Dead. Because, you know, if you think about something like, um, I always think of Sister Ray as being similar to John Coltrane's Chasing the Train, which is like the, the, you know, when he, the birth of his like fully formed self Mm -hmm. in a way, it's like this thing he would do live where it's a pretty simple song and he just like rips through the chords and rips through, you know, like lines and notes and stuff for like 18 minutes straight. And he's like, you know, chasing something as the title tells you, you know, he's like trying to push it as far as he can and get somewhere. And it's like, I feel that same impulse driving both of these pieces, no matter how actually different they sound. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see that. Yeah. Are you on board with that, Darren? I don't know. Um, I, I feel like the two live Sister Rays are. I don't know. I, I, bec- you know, with Dark Star, I feel like it's a bit easier to follow that train of thought because, you know, the song has enough structure. And it's recognizable uh, for the most part. Once they get like way out of there, it's it's hard to recognize. But like each one of the dark stars that you that we have on this list, I felt like I recognized up until you get to like the lyric section. You know what I mean? Like it, the centralized idea was there. And I feel like Sister yeah. Ray, the white light, white heat has all of that. And but the the other live ones just feel real jammy and just kind of like. <laughs> You know. I can't believe you don't like them. I think they're, I, no, like, I am. they blew my mind when I first heard them. Um, I just, I, I feel like the White Light, White Heat version is like a masterpiece. Like it's almost unfair okay. that it's on this list because it. I, yeah. I actually strongly prefer the the live ones at this really? point in my life. Like, I, I, I maybe we can interrogate that a little bit more. But to stick with the studio for a second, I mean, it's also interesting, right? That if we were talking about like the Grateful Dead is almost capturing an acid trip or something with Dark Star. Mm-hmm. I mean this studio sister ray is like what it's like to take amphetamines you know which is he, mm-hmm. he's like shouting at the end of the song um you know to be on speed because it's like the drums you know it is kind of like a continuous propulsive thing but they like speed up or they go like double mm-hmm. time and sometimes get going like really fast and it kind of like creates even though it, it sort of like stays um basically the same like you know basic tempo in a, in a way um 
it creates this impression of like the song is speeding up continuously over the entire like 17 minutes you know even when everything falls apart and it's like just the snare going you know and like even it sounds like the organ is like sputtering out like he blew the amp or something (laughs) like that um it, it just feels like it's getting faster and faster and faster the whole time which is you know obviously like the complete opposite direction that the grateful dead go and sort of like breaking it apart to where it's like almost not even a song hanging together anymore um but i also am sort of fascinated by i don't think the i don't think the grateful dead get enough credit for like their sort of experimental tendencies if you think about in the late 60s you know the way that obviously the velvet underground are using their instruments it's like the guitar soloing on the studio version is like basically like a ornette coleman or Cecil Taylor kind of destruction of the sound of the instrument. The feedback is as important as the notes he's playing, if not more so, you know what I mean? Um, And the Grateful Dead do that kind of stuff too. Like in that 1969 um, uh, Dark Star, you know, he, there's that sort of like feedbacky section where I don't know how he's doing it, but somehow like, Jerry starts sort of like hitting these these solo notes and it's like feedbacking in a crazy way each time he hits it. There's stuff where you can hear like a very Sonic Youth kind of vibe I get where you can hear that they're like, like Bob Weir is like hitting the bridge of his guitar. So it like kind of, you know, like like a gong or a chime or something. Um, there's like scraping on the strings and stuff. You know, you know what I'm saying, Dan? Like expanding what what an instrument can do yeah like like um, not I, using it in its uh, intended way uh which a, a yeah. lot of those uh 60s experimental acts like did you know bronca and all that stuff um which yeah, later yeah. But same thing yeah and like a john cage kind of a vibe like they're yeah. both coming from this tradition and it's interesting that even by 1972 i think you can hear that they're doing a little less of that the grateful dead like kind of gets a little bit tighter it's also interesting that that 72 dark star the drums are playing instead of just hand percussion there's one drummer at that point um and he's like giving a pulse to the entire thing even though it gets like it almost becomes pure like jazz when especially like when just the bass and the you know it's piano now instead of organ um and and yet it does get quite noisy at the end you know i just um you know sticking with the studio you wouldn't grant that darren that there's something like sort of inherently similar in the idea behind these two pieces yeah i just i still kind of feel like jerry garcia guitar wise is like still playing like you know melodic yeah, very musically like, yeah like you know scales like it, it just you know compared to like a lou reed where it reminds me sort of like you know stephen malcolmus is like you know guitar solo from pavement where it's like it's not meant to sound wonderful you know what i mean and it's it's he's not trying to sound like a jimmy page sort of thing or like a crazy guitarist but it still sounds amazing and i feel like that's all over sister ray you know but like well uh, yeah i mean i i do appreciate that like i think that jerry garcia is not like virtuosity he's not like you know whoever like steve vi or something it's like uh very melodic it's like actually like something's supposed to contribute to the to the music um but it is very musical you're right how do you feel dan about um these later live versions of sister ray which do get a lot more musical you can hear that they're very much in the self-titled and loaded period Mm -hmm. you know which is where these performances come from and it's really quite like chill mellow vibes sometimes it still kind of does that like 
let's speed it up during the during different portions but then they bring it way back down and there's like the two guitars are kind of like soloing in a very melodic like almost bluesy way you know like isn't that i mean it, it changes a lot from its original intention yeah especially the the uh the last one though the matrix tapes yes. one. you know that one it's like a completely almost completely different song uh I, I was listening to it in the car and uh my wife uh asked if it was an acoustic version you know like because <laughs> you know at, at the get-go it, it almost sort of sounds like that um yeah. and and yeah while it does get like it has that big like big big jam section in the middle and it does do the speed up thing and the drums get a little nuts but like it never gets like half as nuts as the the um studio white light white heat version yeah um also shout out to the part where like one of the characters shoots the other one and he like <laughs> says something like it sounds like this and yeah, then, like, plays yeah. like the most screeching <laughs> guitar chord like possible uh really fucking cool but you know do you like it dan how this piece evolves yeah i do i i i've i've gotten in points in my life where i've uh gotten really obsessed with live sister rays i think i think uh, i've heard every one that's ever been recorded i wish there were more yeah there's not that many um but yeah i i like i i don't know if it's like i like it because i've heard the studio so many times and it's like it's one of my favorite like it's probably in my top five favorite songs ever and so yeah, it's like it's you know i do that with a lot of things like dylan and everything like you start getting live things just because like you want to hear the song for the first time uh again and so because of that i think like i really do enjoy these uh live performances like if i was just you know alive when velvet underground was you know coming up and i was cool and i had white light white heat and then i saw him live at at the matrix thing like maybe i'd be a little disappointed that i didn't get this like noise freak out thing um yeah but i think it's cool that that, that that they can do both you know it's not just like a band well, yeah i mean like think of it because we love we all love right like the self-titled yeah oh, yeah album. i do oh, and yeah. so i mean like this is what i'm saying it's part of the appeal of the grateful dead and it's interesting how you know i wish the velvet underground was allowed around longer so we could see how they evolved mm-hmm. um because that's like almost the most fun thing about the grateful dead you these songs you love they like evolve over the years and so don't you think it's kind of cool darren to hear like sister ray reinterpreted for the self-titled era and oh. wouldn't it be awesome to hear it go on for years longer yeah. oh yeah certainly i mean you know we've kind of talked about that before when we were talking about live performances and not wanting to just hear the studio take live yeah you know what I mean? right and I, right. I don't think that sister ray's studio take could ever really be done live like that over and over it just it would be too difficult to it would never be good enough i think is what what the key is so changing it up entirely I'm all for that. I, I all I'm saying is that it's hard to beat the studio version. If like it, we were doing like a head-to-head comparison, but I totally enjoyed both of these, um, you know, live versions. Well, all three of them, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess like you know, I guess in the Grateful Dead world, people kind of ha- they get their favorites at some point, but it's like not about you know what's the best one. It's just like fascinating to hear more. And like, I wish so much that the Velvet Underground had been documented as much mm-hmm. as the Grateful Dead. Cause I would love to hear this piece evolve. And again, sort of like returning to the main topic, I'm like kind of fascinated that a band like the Velvet Underground, which is, you know, in theory, so opposed to what the Grateful Dead represents, as they say, um, would be interested in that same kind of like exploring a jam for 40 minutes, letting the piece 
evolve over the years, like seeing what new places you can go with it. Um, I mean, in sort of returning to these similarities and differences, you know, it was an interesting experience to listen to these two tracks side by side. I was personally struck with, you know, not only how similar, like their kind of origins, you know, where these songs come from and like what they're kind of chasing with these songs. Um, but also it's interesting how it's like by that 1972 dark star, it's kind of mellowing out. It doesn't get as spacey and weird. It, it's more of like a jazzy kind of, um, you know, thing with the drums going the whole time and everything. And it's also interesting that, um, sister Ray is mellowing out as the, uh, as the, you know, months in this case go on. <laughs> um, you know, it's, um, you know, did anything strike you listening is back to back? Isn't it kind of interesting? These parallels? Yeah, I mean, it it was, I, you know, I, I'm sure not a lot of people have have listened to Dark Star and Sister Ray back to back to back to back uh, mm-hmm. like like we did, uh, especially so many times. Um, but yeah, it, it it was like, you know, I think the first time I went through the little playlist, you know, you you, you hear Dark Star and then Sister Ray comes on and you're at first just like taken by the differences you know you you went from this like shimmery you know nice uh for the most part like sounding happy-ish song to like being kicked in the face by by like a distorted guitar and and a guy screaming about uh you know drugs and and everything but then you know when you when you go through it again and everything you like and, and especially with the matrix tape and everything you like see that oh they're sort of doing the same like thing and in principle just like kind of going about it uh differently yeah um very you know like like you talked about like reading you can read a a book you know the same book two different ways and and whatnot you know they like really i think i think listening to them back to back like really showcases that that they sort of are two sides of of the same coin almost yeah what was what were your takeaways uh listening back to back like this Darren. Yeah, I think as you, as you go on down the playlist, the similarities start to come out a lot more. You know what I mean? Um Yeah, especially as it mellows mm-hmm. out. It's right. Just right. Mellows I mean, out. The yeah. core the chords are they don't even do chords anymore. It's just like exactly. these slippery. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that too and I'm like, man, are they even playing the same They're just not right. playing the same notes anymore, you know what I mean? It's like it's so yeah. different. But um you know, like that the Matrix uh Sister Ray Sounds a lot like the start of Dark Star, you know what I mean? It kind of does, like yeah. Quiet, you know, noodling of a guitar. Um, and then, again, you know, Lou Reed reminds you that this is Sister Ray by jumping in with his lyrics. And I think that's what really, you know, keeps these two from being almost identical or very, you know, too similar, right? I, I think it's that, that still, that's still that same mindset of, uh, you know, the East Coast um yeah, subject kind of, matter yes like still you know f- looking directly into life and not not trying to escape it or anything like that not trying to yeah. sail into a, a black hole but rather like you mentioned like burning the world down because because something like that exists you know what i mean because it it just sort of means that everything there's no meaning behind anything right um yeah and the lyrics like i think maintain that even though he sings them in a much more like mellow sounding way and not, not as frantic as the uh the studio version yeah yeah and i mean thinking about it now it's it's actually very interesting that everybody came around to the velvet underground's point of view you know like that's the whole idea is that the 60s were very idealist and um 
then like the crushing reality of the 70s uh sort of hits everybody you know you hear everybody like john lennon turns into a cynic you know um and stuff like that but somehow the grateful dead remain like pure idealists all the way into the mid 90s you know uh kind of incredible but um you know the big question i don't expect uh to have converted you or anything but did you come to like dark star a little bit did you get even mildly interested in checking out more grateful dead either of you i mean i think i my level of grateful dead fandom uh has basically been the same for 15 ish <laughs> years and uh yeah. it'll probably stay that you know i i get <laughs> okay. i get into points where like i especially i i find myself you know like sometimes you, you just can't like figure out what the fuck you want to listen to a lot of times when i get in those moods i'll just put on a a a show from you know like a 70s or 60s uh dead show because uh, you know it'll last three hours so i don't have to pick anything else for the rest of the night <laughs> you know it's right. it's good um you know so i i like the grateful dead like i don't want anyone listening to this to think that i don't like the grateful dead i do uh i just don't like them as much as uh the people listening <laughs> do <laughs> okay um it does kind of appeal i wanted to say dan to like you know, we have this kind of like completist uh, thing about our uh, about us, about our music fandom. Oh, which yeah. Is like I think that's scouring the Internet for this and this. Like it really appeals to me, but it's like an impossible. I think that's what never exactly. I think that's one thing that sort of bothers me about the dead because any band I like, I have listened to every record of theirs, uh, <laughs> even if like they start getting real bad, you know, I'll still I'll power through it. Uh, although I've never listened to Squeeze from Velvet Underground, ever f- me over Yule's du- uh, yeah. dead body, I'll listen to that. Uh, <laughs> but but otherwise, but yeah, the dead. There's like literally no way you could ever like listen to every single just just officially released shows. You could never do it. Like it's it's an insurmountable task, and I think that does like sort of scare me away a little bit. Well, how about you, Darren? Did you uh, find anything you like about Dark Star? Did you get intrigued? I mean, I I liked Dark Star by the end of all of this. Um, but like you were just mentioning, like, I feel, I still feel like it's too daunting of a task to try to tackle the Grateful Dead. Like, I feel like I would need someone to like curate a playlist or a list of like, here's what you should hear or need to hear. Um, hey, funny I just you say don't that. Know where, I'll, I'll do that for you. <laughs> I just don't know where to go. I don't know where to go. And like, you're, you know, Dan, you're talking about a lot of live albums, but then I guess there's studio albums. So like, I, I don't know. It's just, it. I wouldn't say that like Dark Star was enough to make me like very very interested, but it's certainly like I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it at all. I appreciated it. I thought it was cool. It was kind of what I sort of thought it would be, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and if there's you know more of that, or if there's more to explore, I I would be interested. Yeah, if you if you curated something, I would I would certainly check it out. Oh, I'll totally do it. Actually, <laughs> seriously, watch that uh long strange trip documentary and you'll be like really it really is great um and it does give you a sense of like their different stages and you would kind of be like oh that stage sounds really uh, appealing to me and they do play a lot of music but um what was i gonna say oh yeah so you know as we kind of like get toward the end here i wanted to sort of return to this idea of you know the grateful dead sort of lasting too long you know and trying to figure out like why does or did the Grateful Dead leave a bad taste in our mouths? Um, you know, while the Velvet Underground certainly doesn't. Um, 
Did you guys, I, I, I provided a couple bonus tracks to our little assignment listening here. One was a 1967 performance of Sister Ray, which would have been so close to the time that they recorded the studio one that mm-hmm. I thought, let's just do the studio. Um, the other one was a 1990 Dark Star. I don't imagine, did either of you guys get a chance to skim through this? I did. I listened to that 90 Dark Star and uh, that was not very good <laughs> that, that that like when the, the saxophone it just it got yes. it got cheap you know it sounds the midi the midi oh, sounds God, like yeah. it oh. it got it got like real 90s uh you know aging rock band uh, legacy act sounding um yeah i did not enjoy that whatsoever <laughs> what about you darren yeah i checked it out um but was definitely not not at all feeling it um and then the sister a it's so much like the studio version, mm-hmm. but you know, it again, it becomes sort of clear that I mean, that was just an amazing take. That studio version, you know what I mean? That yeah, maybe right, like right. lightning in a bottle, like it just could not live up to yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, when it comes to the 1991, again, I should just clarify. It's just I'm sure there's stuff to be discovered. Um, I just haven't made it that far yet, but it's like. I don't know if I'm supposed to one day be able to like ignore the bad MIDI keyboards and stuff, or if I'm supposed to like learn to like that sound, you know, but it just sounds I think it's just very it's one of those sounds that gets dated, you know, like the eighties had a lot of that very. kind of stuff. It's just like a technology that got outdated. And you know, like the guitar has been around since you know, the electric guitar has been around since the fifties. And it's still, you know, around and whatever. But, you know, like a lot of early synths and especially like yeah, computerized synths, you know, it was a totally different uh, type of technology. And it's just now we can do so much better that they, they sound old and cheesy. You know, like you hear that sound and you know it's from the late 80s <laughs> or early 90s, you know. It's just one of those things that you can like immediately place where you are. Whereas like the guitar, drums, you know, don't yeah. do that. And there's something like very real and like, um, you know, it just feels like very um, something you can like reach out and touch and feel or something about the Grateful Dead's music. I I can't get over the fact like you can watch the 1972 performance uh, in Veneta, um, like on YouTube and stuff. They released like a film, a film of this concert. And um, and actually you would you. Maybe you remember from the documentary, the clip, Dan, where there's like a naked guy that looks like Iggy Pop, just like dancing <laughs> Could behind be Iggy. Jerry. <laughs> it, it's fucking bizarre. This guy is like completely naked and sunburned and just dancing <laughs> like a maniac. But um, but anyway, um, you just can't get over like when you hear it and then you look at it and it's like just, you know, like five guys like mm-hmm. standing there, you know, they've made like such a huge sound. And it's really just five guys. And then by the time you get, you know, there's no, you know, you, you associate like Prague and, you know, this kind of stuff with like big light shows and all of that shit, you mm-hmm. know, and the Grateful Dead is just not that at all. But then I think by the time you get to like the 90s, it is kind of that, you know, um, there's something kind of sad about it. I think that's why I like the documentary so much. It kind of details this like sort of sad end that happens where <clears throat> the scene becomes less about music and more about just like a bunch of frat bros like getting shit faced all weekend, you mm-hmm. know, at the Grateful Dead show, like they're tailgating. Um <clears throat> there's the MIDI effects and stuff, which are, you know, on one hand like dated and bad, but also, you know, it's kind of like 
that laziness of like how to make something experimental. Um, you know what I mean? Like just some sound, add some sound effects to it where, you know, I'm amazed at the, at these early performances where it's like, and actually a lot of sixties psychedelic music where it's like, just, you know, the only effect they have is like some distortion because the amp can distort a little, you know? And the fact that they make psychedelic sounds without all the fucking delay pedals and chorus and reverb and phasers and shit that we have today, you know, um, is fascinating. And by the time you get to the nineties, they're kind of relying on that. There's also something really sad about like in the documentary in the early one of the, maybe the first one, he kind of says, you know, like we're playing live so much. And when you play live a lot, uh, this is Jerry talking, he says like, you learn the tricks, you know, it becomes a trick where like, you know how to get the audience to get up and dance, you know how to get them to ask for an encore, you know, how to get a standing ovation. Like once you master those little things, they become like routines and he sort of says he's got these like these ambitions at the beginning, which to be fair, they do a great job for like 20 years of actually chasing these ambitions and being genuinely boundary pushing. But he's like, once you do, once you get that, you got to leave it, you know, and find something else because otherwise it just becomes like a craft, you know, and by the 90s, that's what it is. You know, it's like, you know, what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, and it makes complete sense. And I mean, like you said, it it is impressive that they managed to do that for 20 years or so, because by the 90s, I, you know, you almost don't blame, you know, anybody that's like still going from the 60s and in, into the 90s. Uh, you can't yeah. really blame them for being a legacy act. I mean, I would... I would do it too for for the money they were probably right, making right, and right. and you know they're they're older I'm sure like in the documentary they talk about like Jerry had gotten real into like scuba diving or or snorkeling or something <laughs> yeah, and like you right. know he didn't want to be t- thinking up a new way to make Dark Star you know I'm sure like he's yeah, right, he doesn't right. give uh, as much of a shit about it anymore which is fine you you know you shouldn't uh, at, at at that age um, and then you know bands all we, we've talked about this time and time again you know bands when they do get a little money now they can afford to you know pay the saxophone guy on stage and and you end right, up like getting right. have the light show and exactly all that. and it's like it kind of like eats eats away at itself like just its own success you know uh it's hard to hold up like under that weight I but know. you know I, I don't blame it you know if this if this version was from 1972 i would say oh you know <laughs> jesus christ but it being 90 I feel like if you were seeing the dead in in 1990, you probably were seeing them for a nostalgia act, or because you you weren't yeah. old enough to see them in in the 60s yeah. or anything, you well, know? It, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's it's kind of similar. This is kind of a long, or you know, like a, a stretch a bit, but like it's similar to like the Weezer problem. You know what I mean? Like you have like the Blue Album and Pinkerton, and like you know now. Rivers is like 40 something mm-hmm. and yet right. fans are still like longing for a return to that but like, yeah. you know, Weezer has gone in a different direction they've grown up and whatever and like I I would be shocked if we were listening to this 90, ver- 90 version of the Grateful Dead and it still sounded like they were searching and yeah. exploring the way they did back in the 60s and 70s I mean yeah. nobody can keep an edge for for you know 35 40 years you know it just otherwise they're faking it right yeah exactly i mean nobody nobody has like stayed on the cutting edge for that long it just doesn't happen yeah so i mean it's very interesting because you know to return to that festival that i went to um you know it's it's kind of crazy because 
it kind of does recreate that vibe of like the 80s 90s you know what it must have been like right even though they're playing shows sometimes from the 70s and 60s and stuff but um you know i think about this thing called drums drums space i don't know if you guys are familiar with this but going back to like the very beginning they would do these like things where it becomes because they had two drummers for most of their um existence and um actually not in the 1972 dark star that we listened to but um they would do this thing where it's just a drum solo like these two are just sort of experimenting and then it's like the band would take a short break while the two drummers just go nuts on like all kinds of gongs and And what was that big thing they had built like uh it's got a, a name. It, uh, the wall of no, 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 not thing. not that. The uh, it's like an instrument uh, that the one of the drummers uses. Oh uh, yeah, what I the fuck is that thing called? It. You know, it's like this long wooden thing. Uh, I think it has some strings on it. So you know, somebody will email us. Yeah, so, yeah, some kind of crazy thing. Yes, and as you you see, like as the years go on, it, it just gets their drum sets get bigger and bigger with more like you know midi effects and stuff and more like huge gongs and more like crazy you know bongos and uh you know crazy shit right um so throughout their whole career they do this little ritual where it's like they take a break and the drummers get to like go nuts they come back and they just go into like pure noise like drone kind of vibes for a little bit early in their career it would be called instead of space they would just call it feedback they would straight up go from drums to just a wall of feedback for a while before like slowly turning that into something, you know? And so it starts off as this genuinely experimental thing. And by the nineties, by the thing that I'm seeing, you know, in the, um, in the dark star Jubilee, it's like just a routine. Like everybody knows Mm -hmm. how drums goes. They know this is when you, you know, walk back to your campsite and, you know, take a leak and get some more beer, you know, and then (laughs) by the time you get back, it'll be, it'll be over. Um, but Also, there's just nothing adventurous about it. You know, it's like it's like everything that Jerry says he didn't want to do at the start of this documentary. And I know that by the end of the Grateful Dead's career, that's what they are, you know. And so basically, you know, tie back to Sister Ray. I believe that there's a lot of baggage from what the Grateful Dead kind of becomes that makes us see them as not an equally adventurous an equally experimental and important cult band um, as the Velvet Underground. Um, I wonder if you guys agree with that. And also, as a little like, um, you know, let's say like a genie appeared and he was like, okay, you'll get live recordings of, like the Velvet Underground will never break up and you'll get live recordings of Sister Ray for like decades. <laughs> but by the end, the Velvet Underground will become a very sad terrible nostalgia band would you take that deal well lou reed still make an album with metallica at the uh (laughs) um yeah let's say yes okay well um because if we got rid of that then i'd take it but um (laughs) uh no i don't think i would take it because i i think you're right you know the the velvet underground they were never famous like when they existed basically um right and so you know they didn't everyone like discovers l- this thing that's already got a beginning and and got an end to it um and the velvet underground did uh reunite in is it 93 uh there's that one live album yeah, i think it's 93 like but it, it was a very short live you know him and kale uh lou and kale uh couldn't couldn't keep it together um right. they never played sister ray either i i checked um mm. 
but yeah you know like the dead has that baggage and i think the problem with the dead too is the dead weren't as famous in the 60s and 70s they became famous like in this sort of late thing so like a lot of people who are you know had never really listened to it or you know haven't discovered it like that's what you see first they had that like famous music video on a um mtv where they would like turn into skeletons and shit and like yeah yeah yeah. yeah. and like they're pretty old like when that's going on and then there's that grateful dead movie and i remember just like it's like weird like as a little kid like i knew what the grateful dead were my my parents don't listen to them or anything but like you know they just were like on tv and like a part of like culture whereas like the velvet underground you know like become that but it's not like a you know a 10 year old kid or whatever i mean and when jerry died i was like six you know like a six-year-old doesn't it didn't know you know i didn't know who lou reed was but i probably knew who jerry garcia was at least you know i had seen him before and so like when you have this like when you have this like what could have become or or you know or just just having a beginning and end that's all your your peak it makes yeah. it much easier to be cool, you know, like, cause I think the, right. I think the Grateful Dead, you know, if, if, if the Grateful Dead stops in the seventies, I think they're looked back as pretty cool, you know? Yeah, possibly. Yeah. In fact, their fan base too, I think gives them, gets a lot of shit. It, it, like if if you take away the fan base of the grateful yeah, dead there's a little bit of that like overexposure thing you know with like um i get like a like a bob marley vibe where it's like yeah the uh whoever's in charge of the marketing is willing to sell their brand to literally fucking anything oh yeah you there's know? so you can buy anything with a grateful you dead can, logo you can literally it, you know? go to i i i bought my dog a uh love grateful dead bandana at target on uh on clearance yeah you know? <laughs> and actually in some way like a um like a simplification happens because you know i think about like um bob marley right my our, our idea of him is like this kind of peace and love thing and then like you finally listen to his records for the first time and you're like this this is way more fucking hardcore yeah. than what i you know um this like popular brand image of bob marley on t-shirts is not what he really is um I think there's a lot of depth to the Grateful Dead, particularly in this like genuine experimentalism and stuff that's like, um, and maybe their lyrics are a little, you know, utopian and stuff like that. But I think there's also a lot of like darkness in them sometimes. And so, you know, that, that, that's overexposure simplification is, is harmful. Do you agree with this, Darren, that maybe like, maybe the Grateful Dead do deserve a lot more respect amongst the kind of people who like Velvet Underground people, as we would say, but uh, there's something about the branding and the, going on too long that's maybe the main culprit here well certainly because if if they don't go on into the 80s and 90s then if whenever we discover them we're going to discover them you know in the era of the 60s and the 70s and that'll be it there will be no yeah there there will be no uh preconceived notion or whatever like like i'm i've been describing like Oh, Jerry Garcia, he's just like this old guy and then he's got like a Ben and Jerry's ice cream flavor, right? I mean, you know what I mean? Like none yeah. of that would exist. And the the question about the genie thing that you mentioned, like I would I would say absolutely not. As much as I would love more live recordings of the Velvet Underground, I would not want to see <laughs> a career that goes the, in that direction in in watching them on like these 
infomercials where they're talking about these career box sets of the Velvet Underground, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? And like yeah. old Lou Reed and all this stuff. Like, oh God, no. And, uh, and you know, genies <laughs> are always like trying to trick you. So you take it, you get 30 years, it's the Doug Yule version. 30 years of, of uh, Doug Yule. <laughs> 30 years of squeeze. <laughs> Just reinterpreting every squeeze song. <laughs> For 30 oh years. <laughs> and Lou Reed rejoins, but he's like a side man now. It's awful. Yeah, that's like that, re- that Reddit, the monkey paw thing yeah, where you yeah. make a wish and they, they think of the worst way it could possibly go. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, is that enough for uh, this week then? Yeah, yeah. I think we're out of time here. All right. Well, uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, maybe we'll read it on the air. You can email us, popshieldpod at gmail.com. Next episode's going to be in two weeks. This is one I'm excited about. Bob Dylan and the Rolling Thunder Review. Uh, So if you like the show, help us out by subscribing and leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And stay connected. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that is at PopShieldPod. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you. So long.